0: Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't often do this, as you know, but I'm going to read a little paragraph here. Many of you uh, received this as I sent out a text this evening. Only one Black Friday. There was only one Black Friday, and it was uh, not the day after Thanksgiving. It was not a day when self-oriented consumers bumped into, climbed over, pushed into, screamed at, and hated the other consumers who were in their way. No, all the action of that one Black Friday was on a hill of death outside the city where three souls hung on crosses, two criminals and the Messiah. Christ doing what he came to do and what the world was desperate for. That Friday, the world went dark. Father turned his back, graves opened, and the veil ripped in two. The son carried the father's anger. Death was offered so life could be given. Darkness fell so light would shine. Payment made, freedom given, redemption accomplished. It was only one Black Friday. No need to shop anymore for a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's Paul David Tripp. We are a people that is in desperate need of a Savior. We need the Savior. We don't just need the Savior one time in our life. This is all our life long. We are in need of a Savior. You ever stop and think about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit? You ever think about why is it as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ that you're not feeling better about yourself? But you struggle more, it seems, with the sin in your soul. Doesn't that seem to be backwards? Doesn't it seem to be strange? Paul, at the end of his life, said he was the chief of all sinners. When he wrote the epistle to the Romans, he dealt with the struggles that go on in the soul of a believer. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And the things that I ought to be doing, I don't find myself to do them. And he says, O oh, wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have the victory in Him. The point is that when we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you find your need for the Savior more and more, not less and less. You find your desire for Him, your yearning and longing for Him, your need of Him. That's what goes on in the Christian life. That's not often what you hear today in the modern evangelical world. In the modern evangelical world, it would be as if they want you to think that your arm begins to grow as you are sanctified so you can pat yourself on the back. And you can find esteem in yourself in how well that you're doing. No, that's, that's opposite. You grow in holiness you're going to grow in a greater need for the Savior. You're going to recognize that. You're going to recognize no hope without Jesus. You're going to recognize your need to see Him, to meditate upon Him, to want to know Him in a greater measure every single day of your life. That's growing in sanctification. Your sin is going to become more of that which is in your face bigger greater, you're going to find yourself as one who recognizes, well, I must be the chief of all sinners. You will be amazed that Christ came for you, to give his life for you. This is what we find in the saints within Scripture, as they revealed to us their lives and what they went through. Many today would have you to believe that if you're a Christian, well, you shouldn't suffer. You shouldn't have any pain and problems. Is that what you read here in Hebrews 11? Is that what you saw this evening in Hebrews 11 with the saints of old, the godly men and women? They did not have a pain-free life. They had all kinds of problems. Jesus said that in this world you will have tribulation. And we are to be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Life, death, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The bookends of Romans 8. No condemnation, no separation, ever. And so, there are problems and difficulties. These saints, I mean, it was, it's, it's humbling to read through that, that list of things that they went through. Which, I have not suffered that. You have not suffered that. But in the first century, these were the believers. These were the Christ followers. It says that they subdued kingdoms Worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. You know, that's referring to Daniel. Quench the violence of fire. Oh, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. You know, this is what Paul says. When I am weak, then I am strong. Because then I don't look to myself. I look to the Savior for the strength that He alone can give. They were valiant in battle. They turned to flank the armies of aliens. And he goes on. And notice what? They were tortured. Tortured for their faith. They didn't accept deliverance. You know, recant. Recant of following this Savior. Say you made it up. Say he's a false Messiah. And we'll stop the torture. They wouldn't. They wanted to obtain a better Resurrection. What does that mean? There are rewards that the Lord gives to His people for their service to Him. God crowns His gifts. It's by grace that He gifts them, but nevertheless, He gifts His people. Others had hard trials of mocking and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. We find that with Peter. We find that with the Apostle Paul. The disciples often found themselves in jail. Have you ever been imprisoned? for being a Christian, not for stealing somebody's goods, for murdering, for kidnapping, not for the crimes that we find in this world. But if you've ever been put in prison because you've preached the gospel, because you were living your faith faithfully, diligently for Christ, none of us have in here, have we? May come to that someday. There was some during the pandemic that suffered imprisonment. Why? Because they would not deny their Lord. We are too accustomed, beloved, to give in. We're too accustomed to go along with the ways of the world. We're too easy. We are too susceptible to, they said it okay, we'll cave into it. If God commands it of us, it is sin to give in to something that the government imposes. The government wants to impose hate crimes for speaking out against homosexuality. Scripture speaks of it, it speaks of it as an abomination to the Lord. And as preachers, we cannot refrain from speaking what the Lord says. But often, that's the case. They had chains and prisons, stone, sawn in two, tempted, slain. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. You know, Christians in the first century were tied up in animal skins and thrown into the Roman Colosseum as a sport to watch the lions then devour them as if they were animals that were in the Colosseum. Uh, Lions would tear them apart as the Christians were sewn up in animal skins, acting like animals that were in there. They wandered about. And these, as the writer of the Hebrews says, notice the text, um, this is the cloud of witnesses that surround us. These are witnesses for us. They are examples for us. They are not witnesses to us. Maybe you've heard this before that this cloud of witnesses is like an an auditorium or a a football field and they're they're sitting in the stands cheering you on and watching you run. Now that's not what he's saying here. They're witnesses to us of their life, of standing firm, their faith that we're called to follow, to be faithful even unto death in obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. In what you may go through As a follower of Jesus Christ. And so they're examples to us. And we have that cloud all around us here in Hebrews chapter 11. And so they're saying, lay aside everything that would entangle you from running the Christian race. Now notice the word race there. The Greek term agon. What do you think we get from the Greek term agon? We get agony. What is the Christian race? It's an agony. It's painful. You've seen runners. And as they've been in pain while running. And you can see the agony on their face. The expression that they have of the difficulty of the race that they're running. This is the Christian race. Beloved, this is it. In this world you have tribulation. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not May, will. You can't be in this fallen world and not have persecution and tribulation. But the example is given. Look to the scriptures. Look to the saints of old. Look how they ran. Look what they endured. Why? Because their hope was in the risen Christ. Let me ask you, if Christ is not risen, why would you suffer such torment? You would not do so for a Savior who had died, who is then no Savior. One who is not risen, it's not worth living for. But Christ is risen from the dead. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. He has risen from the dead. He, is, he has been uh, raised up by the power of God. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father And he is ruling over all things. So let us run. Let us run with endurance. Keep on running. A steady perseverance. Keep on running, beloved. And how do you run? Look at our text, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. I don't think there's any more important words in Scripture for us. Is there looking unto Jesus? Because we often can get off focus. We often can look at other things and look to other things or even look to ourselves. And this is what the writer of the Hebrews says. If you're going to run the Christian race, which is difficult of itself, you must run with your eyes focused, steady upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not a quick glance. The Greek term here means a steady look upon Christ. It's a diligent look upon Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. You know when you've seen things and you look at something and you you do a double take and you begin looking at it and you begin to stare at it so where somebody says, what are you looking at? You know, hey, don't bug me. And you've got, it's not a glance. It is a concentrated look. And when you're looking in that way, you're examining the features. It's not a temporary, it's not a simple, it's not a brief momentary It's a focused Your eyes are locked on to Jesus That's what he's saying That's how we run You know, my problems, my troubles They all seem to be, exa- to, to be uh, uh, exacerbated they, they seem to be greater than they are Why? Because I begin looking at my problems And you know what I'm talking about, you do too You get all wrapped up in the problem, and you forget about the Savior. Don't tell me you don't. Don't tell me you haven't, because I know you have. Because when the virus came, that was a proving ground, wasn't it? About the fear and the focus. And my question always was, where's Jesus in all of this? Where is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who rules over all things for His glory and the good of His people? Where is the one who works all things together for the good of those who love Him? Who controls even all the creepy crawlies of the earth are in His hands. So without His will, they cannot so much as move. And yet the focus was wrong for many who name the name of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that they aren't Christians. I'm just simply saying in this world, we can get off focus. And when we do, what happens to us? We become fearful. We become frightened. And then when we become frightened and fearful people, we become irrational people. We are not thinking. We're not reasoning with the scriptures. And it begins to affect our faith. The strength of faith, of looking and standing firm in the truth that is in Jesus Christ. The government says, don't do this. And so many just cowered under that. So when you're not focused, beloved, on Jesus, you're going to have a problem. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, the, the author, which the Greek term Archagos means he is the beginning of it. He is the beginner of faith. Now, that can be taken in two different ways. One way, it can be taken that he is an example to us of trust in his father. And he has an example that we are as well to follow. But in another sense, Christ is the beginner of faith, which means he begins that within us. He begins the faith. He begins by creating faith in the heart. He is the one who causes us to believe. So Christ is the author of our faith. He is the one that we look because the faith that He is given by the working of the Spirit is to look to Him. To find our comfort, our confidence in Him. He is also the finisher. Now, Paul says that he who has began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The, the Greek term means he will bring it to completion. He began it, he will end it. He will bring it to the completed course. So, we struggle of am I going to make it? And Christ says, I started it, I will finish it. You will finish The faith race because of the author and the finisher of our faith. And this is where we find this Good Friday the remembrance of what he did who for the joy that was set before him. Now, this is pain that he's going to endure. The inexpressible anguish, Pains and tears of the cross, and the writer of the Hebrews says that there was joy that was set before him. Isaiah speaks about that in Isaiah fifty-three as well. There is joy in the Savior to do the will of the Father, even though that there is pain to be had, even though there is great suffering to endure. Yet he finds joy. In doing the will of the Father. That's why he said. If this cup can't pass from me. Your will be done. If it can. If there's another way. Let it happen. But if not. Then I will drink the dregs to the bitter end. Because it is written of me. Lo in the volume of the book. I come to do thy will. O my God. It was Christ's will. His desire. His meat and his drink to do the will of His Father in heaven. You remember when the disciples went into the city to buy food, and they came back, and Jesus said, I have food of which you know not of. It's the meat and drink to do the will of the Father. He had joy in this sense, to redeem a multitude that was given unto Him by His Father. Christ found joy through the suffering, through the death, through the pain, through the wrath, through the inexpressible anguish coming upon him, that he might redeem a multitude unto himself. This is prophesied from the beginning, beloved. All through the crimson red scriptures, all the way through scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it is spoken about. It is the highlight, is the work of the Messiah on behalf of his people. The serpent's seed would crush his heel, but he would crush his head. This is the seed of the woman. This is Christ. Christ, the seed of the woman, crushes the head of the serpent and he comes to do the will of his Father. And so he finds that joy to do the will of the Father. You know, I I don't always find joy in doing God's will, there are times when I struggle. There are times that it's difficult. There are times when the dark providence comes upon you and you can't understand what's going on. And at those times, beloved, is when we need to fall back upon what we know to be true. Is that God loves us as his people. That he's given his only begotten son the greatest gift that could be given. He is given. And that is His Son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. And so that's why 44 of the Catechism says, That in my greatest temptations, I may be assured that Christ my Lord, He has taken the punishment which lay upon me. Christ found great joy in doing the will of the Father. He had the people of God before Him. As He gave His life a ransom for many. I've told you about the Catanine tails, the scourging that went on at that time in the Roman Empire. <clears throat> the Catanine tails, with the leather strips and the metal and the glass and anything that they had, bones, sharp objects of the day would be tied upon those leather straps which would be attached to a wooden stick. Then they would be tied to a post so that they were stretched out in this manner, tied to a post where that the catanine tails could go up under the ribcage and rip back, which Josephus accounts that the inward parts were exposed in those that went through such scourging. Forty lashes, 39 minus one, because one of the punishments for one who went over 40 was that they would receive the lashes themselves so they stopped at 39 so they would not go over Christ took 39 lashes and you can see he is truly human and his body was ripped to shreds and why was he ripped to shreds why did he endure that for the joy that was set before him of redeeming a multitude and doing the father's will what would we call that we would say that's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 that I have been crucified with Christ It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Notice, and He gave Himself for me. How did He give Himself? He gave Himself to the lashes for me, for my sins. He was scourged for me. And for you if you're trusting in Christ. He endured the cross. I'm just thinking about that, where I thought about that uh, all day. Uh, Hupomeno. The Greek term means that he stayed up under. Now you remember uh, the Greek term meno means to remain or to abide. And what it means, the hupomeno, is he, he remained up under the scourging. He remained there on the cross. Can I not now call 12 legions of angels? No, He doesn't do that. He stays up under the wrath of God for His people. What is that? What love is this? That we should be called the children of the living God. What love is this? That the Son of God would lay aside the prerogatives of deity and come in the likeness of human flesh except for sin and give Himself as a punishment for my sin. To absorb my sin in his place. That's love. I don't care what the world says. The world knows nothing of this love, beloved. This is love. When you ask, I want to know what love is, the world thinks This is love right here. He gave himself for us. To the bitter dregs. And he comes as we read in Romans 5, not for righteous people, but for his enemies. For scarcely a righteous man, someone might dare to die, but God shows forth his own love in that while we were still enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Let me ask you, would you give your life in in place of one who was on death row, one who was raped and pillaged and, and stolen and just killed? Would you give your life for that individual so that that individual could go free and you would take their place? Would you do that? Would you do that? Let's make it even more intense. How about one who has killed one of your family members? And they're sentenced to death. Would you take their place? One who even hates you and would have killed you if they could have. Would you take their place and their punishment? Would you do that? This is what Christ did. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. He would not remove himself until it was finished. The will of God must be complete. He must drink the dregs to the bitter end. Jesus told his disciples, I have a baptism to be baptized with, of which you know not of. It's a baptism of fire. It's the wrath of God coming upon him. And here it is, our Savior, keeping himself up under the wrath of God to complete all that was given to him to do. Because it could not be that he could lose any. He must redeem all of his people. Beloved, does that humble you? You look at your life. You think about your sin. You think about, I, I, I have personally broken all of the commandments of God. And I am worthy and deserving of both temporal and eternal punishment. I deserve it. God would be just to cast me to hell. But he doesn't do that. He has mercy upon me. He is gracious in giving his son for me. He gives me what I do not deserve. And he takes away what I do deserve. Does that humble you? Does that move you? How does that move you? Does it move you to worship? Does it move you to sing to the Savior? Does it move you to desire to serve Him in a greater measure, in a greater depth? Does it move you to love Him in a greater way? To confess your love? To stand firm and to tell others about this wonderful Savior? Let me tell you about love. Let me show you what the scriptures speak of what love truly is. The world knows nothing of this. He endured the cross. And again, it just wasn't the pain of the physical torture, which there was. The cross, basically, you would die of suffocation. Your arms are stretched out your inability to breathe, to get a breath. And so they would push themselves up to try to suck in air and eventually they would die of suffocation. And if you did last long, uh, it's stated in Deuteronomy that they could not stay on the cross when the sun went down, so they would break their legs so they wouldn't be able to push up to grab a breath. Do you know what it's like, beloved, to be without air? You ever been swimming and someone pushes your head under the pool? And you fight for every breath. You go crazy because you want to breathe. And that's what we say when someone suffers. Keep breathing. It's hard to go through the respiratory thing where you're not able to breathe. So there is that pain on the cross. Let alone having spikes driven through you. I was in the hospital one time. I saw a guy come in as I was... Laying on the bed, watching people go by. And he, he had his hand up as he was coming through. And he had shot himself with a nail gun. And to see the nail in his hand as he walked through. And to see the grimace on his face. I knew he was in pain. But how about this railroad tie type nails that were driven into the, the wrists of Christ. You know, we, we, we have in pictures and things, they'll, they'll say like in the hand, in the palm, but it's not there, it's here. It's here where the bones come, where they wouldn't slide out, where you would be nailed to the cross. He puts the crown of thorns upon Him. But notice it goes on and it says that He despised the shame. What do you mean the shame? It was a shame... To hang upon the cross. Why? Even in Deuteronomy it speaks about it's an evildoer. One who was on the cross is considered an evildoer. And the one on the cross was on the cross naked. There was shame in nakedness. You know in the beginning with Adam and Eve they were naked and unashamed. Shame came when sin came in. Now we cover up, don't we? Jesus is despising the shame. Kata for ne'o, despising. It means to think against. And all the norms and things of what people would say Christ was thinking against that. Why? Because of the joy that was set before Him of redeeming His people. This just boggles your mind. How do you understand this Savior? That goes to such extremes to redeem a multitude that was given to Him. Why? Because of the love that He had for His Father. That first and foremost. We want to think it was because of the love that He has for us. It, it is that, but first, beloved, is the love that He has for His Father. This was a gift from the Father to the Son. And the Son demonstrates His love to His Father by coming to do His will. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. This is why the hymn writer wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps on the sea and He rides upon the storms. What a wondrous God that we serve Christ despised the shame how often are we embarrassed to do certain things because somebody might say something Christ thought against those things it didn't matter of the mocking he saved others save yourself if you're the Christ listen he's calling for Elijah let's see if Elijah will come and the mocking and the laughing and the spurning of the crowd around him, spitting upon him, saying all manner of blasphemy. And he fought against those things. Why? To redeem a multitude for the glory of his Father. Christ, despising the shame, is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was rewarded. He was rewarded in his obedience with a multitude which no man can number. And he is the king of kings. It's the coronation. He sits down. This is the ascension and his session. And he sits down and he rules. And all power and all authority is in his hands. This is the Lord Christ that we worship. The one that loved us in this way. He Consider him. Consider him. Anna Logizomai. Logizomai is the term we use for reason or to think upon. And Anna is the Greek term which means again. And he's saying, think about this one again and again and again, beloved. Present tense. Keep on thinking about this one who gave his life a ransom for you. Who despised the shame. Who took the wrath in your place. Consider him. You think if you consider Him, if you thought about Him, if you rolled Him around in your mind, it would revolutionize your life? It would change the way that you live? Change the way that you think? He endured the hostility from sinners. Well, we're not willing to put up with it. But Christ does. He endures. He puts up with it. He put Himself up under it. I mean, this is God in the flesh. God incarnate. Truly God. Truly man. Who we see this breakthrough at times of His divine nature. You see it at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. You see it when they're looking for the disciples. And Jesus says, whom do you seek? 500 soldiers fall over backwards. But He endures it. He endures it for the love of his father and for the redemption of a multitude. The hostility. The greatest neighbor that you could have is Jesus. He doesn't break any of the commandments. If your cow got out, he wouldn't say, Wow, there's a homeless little critter. No, he'd bring it back. He doesn't lie. He worships the Lord his God and him only. He doesn't make idols and images. He doesn't take the name of the Lord God in vain. He remembers the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He honors his father and his mother. He doesn't murder. He doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't steal. He doesn't lie. He doesn't covet. And yet, here's the hostility from sinners. Sin really perverts our minds, doesn't it? Here we have one before us who is completely righteous and holy, and we want to kill him. And he endures it. And the writer of the Hebrews says, Keep focusing and thinking and revolving your mind again and again upon Jesus. Remember his work. Because, beloved, when you go, not if, but when you go through times of difficulty and the dark providence comes upon you and you become weary and discouraged, you know, the discouragement there is the faint hearted of the soul. It's like you are going to collapse. It means, ek, ek luo is the Greek term, and it means to loose out of. It is almost like your soul is being loosed from you. When that happens, uh, the only remedy that we have is to look unto the Savior who bought us, the one who gave his life a ransom for many. We keep on looking unto Jesus and we run. And we run and we run and we run supported by the son of love. The one who reminds us again and again, I loved you and I gave myself for your sins. So keep on running. I am the author. I am the finisher. I will keep you. I will make you run the race that is set before you. I will cause you to endure. I will love you all along the way because that was my mission to come and to redeem you unto myself for the glory of my Father. Beloved, think on Him because days aren't going to get brighter. They're going to become more difficult. And as we do, and as they do, we need to keep on focusing on the only one that can give us help and hope and love and life. And that's the Lord Jesus who gave Himself for us. Amen. Shall we pray?